So in the last three weeks, I've repeatedly told you that Jesus was crucified in AD 32. So why are we confident about that? After all, uh, this is awfully ancient history, how can we be sure? And to answer this question, I want to drill down into something that I've covered briefly in one of the earlier weeks. It starts with Roman historians. There's actually rock-solid historical evidence that Jesus was crucified no earlier than A.D. 39. This is the historical window, right, by secular historians. No earlier than A.D. 39, and crucified no later than A.D. 33, one of those Passover seasons. Um, and this is the, what the historical time window based upon the work of, of historians shows. But now we uh, can use what we've learned to make that time window much narrower. In fact, we can nail it down. And we do this by linking back to the sign of Jonah. Turn with me to Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew chapter 12, um, to see the sign of Jonah. Uh, let's look at it again. We've seen it several times, but look at this, and we're going to see some amazing things that come out of this tonight. Verse 38, then, Matthew 12, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For, and now he's quoting right out of the Old Testament, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth in Sheol, in Hades, ministering, of course, to the unbelieving uh, dead and the believing dead. And that's how the believing dead came to know uh, uh, that uh, Jesus was the true Messiah. Um, and so uh, now let's look at what would have happened after Jesus was placed in the tomb during a typical Passover week. Because remember, in the, the Passover, was, uh, was marked by the, lunar, the new moon and so forth. So from year to year, which day of the week the Passover feast occurred on bounced all over the place, okay? So in a typical week, remember that the women came to the tomb late in the afternoon after the crucifixion with the intent of embalming the body, right? They had the herbs already, but the tomb was already closed. So in a typical Passover week, when the, would the woman have showed up after the high Sabbath was over, right? He had just been scurried into the grave before the high Sabbath of Passover, and then everybody had the Passover feast, and then, of course, for the 24 hours would have been high Sabbath. So when would the women uh, have come? And this is uh, very instructive, and it's, it's there embedded in your notes. Um, and... Uh, if you're joining us new, we've had a bunch of people join new in the last month. Um, you uh, can get this emailed by checking email, uh, by, by uh, going to the website and putting your email there. You'll get it every Thursday. Uh, and notice here, so this is a typical Passover Sabbath scenario, right? So it's not linked to a day of the week because it bounces all over the days of the week from year to year. And so <clears throat> we come into, here is Christ crucified. Here's your first blank. Christ is crucified here in the afternoon, all right? And this is the first day that he's in the grave, right? Crucified, they get him into the grave before sundown. They had to because the high Sabbath was starting, okay? Uh, and so the first day is in the grave here. And then the high Sabbath begins at sundown. 
And they have the Passover feast right after sundown. Day of preparation, they got everything prepared. Jesus is crucified, all the lambs are ready. Passover feast on the beginning of the high Sabbath. So this is Jesus' first night in the grave. First day in the grave, first night in the grave. So the high Sabbath goes all the way till the next afternoon and evening. And this, of course, is the second day that Jesus would have been in the grave. And here, the high Sabbath ends at sundown. High Sabbath ends at sundown. It's that 24 hours of the high Sabbath, right? And this is a key. In a typical week, the non-Sabbath, so let's pick Monday. Let's say this was Monday, and Jesus was crucified on Monday. And then you have the high Sabbath, so nobody does anything on the high Sabbath, right? Because they're all uh, uh, observing Sabbath. The high Sabbath ends um, and the non-Sabbath begins, but it's nighttime. So obviously the women were, were not going to go to the uh, tomb in the nighttime. And so this is the second night, right? So you've had the first day, the first night in the grave, the second day, and the second night in the grave. And you don't get to count Sunday. There's not a third day in this scenario, because remember, the uh, tomb was empty before sunrise. So notice the women come to the tomb too early. There's your blank. Too early, after only two days and two nights. That's what would have happened in a typical week where you don't have back-to-back -back Sabbaths. Okay? So, here's the problem with the if the crucifixion occurred in a typical week. Here are your blanks. Number one, the woman would have, had to, would have come to the tomb while Jesus was still dead. Right? Because Jesus was going to be, since Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was going to be resurrected by God after three days and three nights. Okay? So he still would have been dead in the grave. Number two, they would have embalmed Jesus' body. What a bummer. <laughs> since he's going to be raised the next morning. That is not fun. Right? Number three, they wouldn't have returned the next morning to discover the empty tomb. Right? Notice, they came, they did their thing, they embalmed him, and they wouldn't have been coming back. And number four, they wouldn't have been there to verify the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah exactly three days and three nights in the grave or the resurrection. Think about that. They wouldn't have been there to verify the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah or the resurrection. So let's think this through. This is a problem, <laughs> for the launching of Christianity. Think this through. The failure of the women to come to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection would have given the Roman soldiers adequate time to discover the empty tomb, mastermind a cover-up plan, and another body would be put into the tomb. And then they would have resealed it. If anyone claimed that they had seen Jesus alive, right? So the witnesses to the resurrection then... If they, when Jesus finally showed up and they said, wow, it's Jesus, he's, raised from, he's been raised from the dead. <coughs> Anyone that claimed that Jesus was alive, the guards would simply roll the stone back and allow everyone to see the body, which would be immediately invalidated the claims of the resurrection. And everybody would have said, obviously, you're either hallucinating or you've seen a lookalike or something like that. But there's the body. Jesus is dead. 
forget this resurrection thing. And remember, as Paul said, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we are of everyone most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation, there is no hope, there's no resurrection, and there is no, resur- there is no church, and there's no Christianity. So in a typical week, the women would have come to the tomb too early while Jesus was still dead. But in AD 32, something different happened. It only happens on average, think about it, there's seven days of the week, and there's two times in that cycle out of seven, in the cycles of seven, two times that you can have back-to-back Sabbaths. The, you can either have the high Sabbath and the week, followed by the weekly Sabbath, or the weekly Sabbath followed by the high Sabbath when the high Sabbath is on a Sunday. Those are the only two out of seven rotations where you have this back-to-back uh, uh, um, Sabbath during Passover. So, notice what happened in AD 32. In AD 32... Surprise, perfect God, control of the entire universe and everything else, (laughs) everything outside of the universe, right? And notice what God did in AD 32. uh, Start filling in your blanks. So here's Christ crucified. We know this is Thursday, but for the moment, uh, it it doesn't matter, except that it creates the back-to-back, right? This is the first day in the grave. Then the high Sabbath begins. Then the Passover feast that evening after sundown. And this is the first night in the depths of the earth, according to Jonah, in Hades, going to hell for us. Amazing. So that we don't have to. Notice, this is the second day, right? So he got into the grave before the, the, uh, it was sundown. So that's the first day. That's the first night. Here's the second day. And the high Sabbath ends on Friday evening. But in AD 32, you have this back-to-back Sabbath. So guess what? The weekly, the weekly Sabbath begins on Friday night. So there's an undisrupted flow of perfect Sabbath all through here, giving no chance for anyone to go back to see the tomb or to see the body because you couldn't walk. You had only a certain number of steps, right? You could, they couldn't do that. That would have been considered work, walking too far to go to the tomb. All right. And so here is Jesus' second night in the grave in the depths of the earth. And then you come into the next day. This is now, of course, this is Friday evening, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, fr- Friday evening into Saturday. And Saturday is the third day, right? Friday night into Saturday is the weekly Sabbath. And here the weekly Sabbath ends at sundown. So on Saturday evening, the non-Sabbath begins. And of course, again, since it's night, nobody's going to the tomb because it's, it's night. So you now have your third night. And there's no fourth day because four days and three nights would have biffed it too for Jesus, right? We know for sure that before sunrise, Jesus has been raised for the dead. So look at this. One day, one night, two days, two nights, three days, three nights. And before the sun comes up, John makes sure and tells us, well, that's what happens. The women come 
to the tomb right on time. Isn't our God amazing? And let me just stop for a moment. I'm sure there are, we have so many people watching now uh, over a series of weeks. I am sure there are some who are searching. Let me tell you, this is perfect. None of this could have been made up. It's utterly, completely flawless, fulfilled prophecy that could not possibly have been faked. This is Jesus, everyone's Messiah, everyone's Savior. And right now, if you do not know Jesus, fall down before him, repent of your sins, and turn and, re and return to him and, and make him Lord of your life. So notice this. What had to happen? Here's your blank. It's a, it's a long set of them, but let's read it together. The only way to meet the three-day, three-night mandate and to have the empty tomb discovered at exactly the right time, Sunday morning, right? The only way for that to happen was to have, here's your blanks, back-to-back -back Sabbaths and the only time this happened within the documented historical time window Remember, A.D. 29 to A.D. 33, the historians say, was when Jesus had his Passion Week and was crucified. The only time that that happened within the documented historical time window was during the Passover week of A.D. 32. So, in fact, it even gets better than this. Next week, we're going to see another reason that it had to be A.D. 32. And we'll study a, uh, study a series of prophecies that will literally blow your mind. They predicted not just the year, but literally the very day that Jesus, on his triumphal entry, was declared the Messiah, the Prince of Israel. And you'll, you'll be absolutely amazed, so don't miss next week. It is uh, one of the three greatest timing prophecies in the whole word. So the summary of the last four weeks is this. The Friday crucifixion is an erroneous tradition. The Word teaches that Jesus not only had to be crucified on Thursday, it teaches through all of the things that we have gone through repeatedly in each of the Gospels that in fact he was crucified on Thursday. And the great news is, when we get this right, it's utterly astonishing how everything fits together absolutely perfectly. Not one detail of messianic prophecy gets missed. Jesus meets every single prophetic mandate to show that he is the world's Messiah. But tonight, I'd like to take a big step back and ask some obvious questions. Why has the church gotten this wrong for so long? And why has it not been corrected? And, most importantly, what does the error of Good Friday tradition teach us about the church? Now, some of you have been wondering why the Lord would allow this error to be in the church for so long. Why is such a significant error not being rectified? Why does the Good Friday tradition go unhindered without any apparent correction? With these questions in mind, tonight we're going to go through the things that the Good Friday tradition teach us about the church and, <laughs> painfully, about us. So learning point number one, here's your blank. No church, listen church, no church, no matter how biblically based, is infallible. Let me say that again and let it sink in. No church, no matter how biblically based, is infallible. 
every church and every believer need to be frequently reminded that we're not infallible. In fact, humans, even spirit-filled ones, are prone to error because the vastness of the Word and God's truth and God's amazing magnificence, it's so vast that we can't, we, we can't get there, right? So we're prone to error. <clears throat> and this proneness, turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3, um, while well, I set it up. Uh, this proneness to error is, is well documented, right? Even in the early church, amazingly enough. Um, and so uh, in Galatians 3, <coughs> we'll look at the first few verses. We're going to look, an exa- uh, look at an example of this. Look at this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> Don't you love this? Here's our user-friendly uh, preacher, Paul. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You can tell from the letter. They've fallen back into religion, right? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he, Jesus, does Jesus then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do by the works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Now watch Paul's teaching. This is masterful. Look how he uses scripture to correct their error of falling back into the way you make God happy and the way you get saved and the way you're pleasing to God is by doing good things rather than the righteousness which comes by faith, Philippians 3 and 4, right? So so watch what happens uh, in this next thing. He uses scripture, six Old Testament parts of the text. Look at verse six now. Verse six, so even Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There it is, right out of Genesis. Therefore, be sure it is those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham had access to the gospel of faith. Isn't that amazing? 2,000 years before Jesus, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, again, Old Testament here, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. And now he goes on to show that the word of God even the Old Testament has always taught only one way to salvation. Salvation by faith, right? And to do this, he goes way back to the book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets. Look at this, verse 11. Here comes the quote now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evidence for the righteous shall live by faith. Key concept number one. In The righteous meaning the saved. (laughs) Without holiness, no one will see God. The righteous, meaning the saved, shall live by faith. Notice this. This is really important for New Covenant believers to understand. Justification by faith is not a new concept in the New Testament. Paul is using the Old Testament to preach justification by faith. Faith has always been the only way to salvation. 
And now Paul preempts an obvious, he gives us an obvious question. He preempts it here, right? If we can't be justified by the law, then what in the world is the purpose of the law? I suspect we will end up in a mini-series on this at some point. What, what's, what's going on? It's a, it's a good question. If the law can't save, what's the purpose of the law? Notice he closes the loop in verse 23. Verse 23, uh, the last paragraph. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed, Jesus. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Amazing. Look at this text. Here's your key concept number two. The purpose of the law is not salvation. The purpose of the law is to lead us to faith in Christ. Quick stop. If you're new in this series, go back to, it's probably weeks three, four, five, six, maybe seven or eight. Somewhere in there, we, I say there's a series called What Happens to the Dead People? This is perfect timing because where is Jesus during this time? These three days and three nights, he's down in Abraham's bosom. Amazing, a Luke 16. You can look it up, and I teach through that over several weeks there. He's down in there, and what is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. To who? To David and Josiah and all these people who you've wondered, how did they get saved? They had never heard of Jesus. How, if everyone, if Jesus is the only Savior, how in the world did Abraham get saved? Did Noah get saved? How did all these people get saved? How, how did Ruth get saved? And the answer, of course, is through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. So here they are. They've been in Abraham's bosom, being comforted in Sheol, in the depths of the earth, and Jesus comes up and they say, ah, we didn't know about Jesus specifically, but we knew it had to be someone like that because we knew it had to be the Messiah who was our God. And they hear the gospel and then they ascend at the ascension. Uh, Galatians also teaches. They ascend with Christ into heaven. Again, three or four weeks on that. It's uh, really fascinating and answers a bunch of questions that people have about how in the world did the Old Testament believers get saved since they had never heard of Christ. So I want us to think about this, right? Um, the book of Galatians has, was written only a couple of decades after Pentecost. And yet we already see significant theological error in the church that had to be made right by correct teaching from God's word. And Paul uses six passages of the Old Testament scripture to fix this error. So the biggest problem in the church is not that there's error. Notice this. There's always been error in the church. This is right after the resurrection, within a few decades, right? The apostles are still around preaching. There's always been error in the church, okay? The biggest problem is not that there's error in the church. The biggest problem is that the church, we are often unaware of our error. And we are often unable to identify others who are teaching error. Um, now, in, let me give you a, a kind of an illustration. In my practice of emergency medicine at the university, over 25 years, I've supervised residents and interns and students as we're caring for patients together. And one of the things that's so important is the best physicians are not necessarily the smartest. They're all incredibly smart coming in, the, re the residents coming into emergency medicine. It's a, it's a much desired specialty. But um, amazingly enough, 
The physicians who are going to be the best are the ones, I can see it when they're baby interns, as we call them, when they're impressed with how little they know. No matter how much they've learned, no matter how high they scored on tests, they're impressed with how little they know and how much they don't know. And the, the reason why that's incredibly important is, in my specialty, if you don't have a high concern for how much you don't know, even with me, after all of these decades of learning and practicing, I don't, not only do I not know what I could know, I don't even know what I should know. So that high degree of humility, if you don't have it, you kill people because you're too confident about your diagnostic skills. So think about that. There's an interesting parallel in the church. In the realms of truth and eternity, there's a huge amount that we just don't know. So if we don't have a healthy respect for this, even though nobody will die, in the theological, spiritual realm, being unaware of how much we're prone to error is still dangerous. In fact, this problem is exactly what leads to the formation of cults. Some guy starts thinking that he has the truth, and it's never been revealed before to anybody else, right? The church has had it wrong for two millennia, but I've got this new revelation, and that justifies him twisting the scripture to fit his new way of thinking, and he becomes enamored with his new knowledge, and he starts thinking that he's infallible, and bingo, you have a new movement of the Spirit. And everybody just falls that, follows that lead sheep right over the cliff. But this doesn't just happen with apostate cults. It can happen in the church when we lose a healthy respect for our own proneness to error. So, for over 17 centuries, the church has celebrated Good Friday, and guess what? All along, our tradition has been wrong. But this issue can also be true of us personally. Every one of us is prone to look at what the scripture says and then decide whether we like it or not, and then either ignore it or alter it or tell ourselves that it doesn't relate to us or to twist it. This is why every one of us needs three things. Listen, I didn't give you blanks here, but just listen what all three of us need. Number one, we need to study scripture frequently. Number two, we need to be taught scripture frequently. And number three, we need to be challenged by wise counsel about our beliefs and decisions and see if they match up with the biblical text. So how do you have your errors corrected? How do we have our errors corrected? Scriptural study, scriptural teaching, and scriptural accountability. It all flows just like Paul's preaching directly from the word. And what does this mean in a day where the church is becoming increasingly biblically illiterate? Guess what? Many are falling away from the truth because they don't know God's word. Learning point number two. Number two, test human teaching, even human teaching of the scripture. There's a great difference between being rebellious against spiritual authority and testing the truth of the teaching that comes from people who are in spiritual authority. You got that? Rebellion against spiritual authority is always wrong. There's a difference, though, in testing the truth of the teaching. Tur turn with me to 1 John, almost at the very end of your Bible. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and look at the first verse. 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Isn't that interesting? And notice what happens if the testing isn't done. What's gone? What's happened? False prophets out in the world. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. You're ready for the key concept? Here's your blank. If we don't test everything against the truth, then the spirit of Antichrist will even make its way into our lives. Scary, isn't it? Test it against the text. Get taught and have accountability to the text with people and leaders and wise counsel. So let me give a personal example. Before we came to renovation, I taught at Crossroads Church for a long time. And what can happen is when you do 18 years of biblical teaching, you can surround yourself with a group of people who actually believe what the teacher says and often without testing the teaching against scripture. That's not a good thing. The purpose of biblical teaching is for people to go home and study them, show, show themselves approved through study. By testing that and looking and asking questions and interacting and talking to those who, are, who know the word better and so forth, that's, that should happen all the time. Not just fawning over and nowadays with people having millions and millions of viewers, just fawning over these teachers. And it doesn't matter how good of a te- biblical teacher they are. Everyone is prone to error. So don't let this happen to you. Be diligent, be alert, be attentive to what you hear, and then test each word of humans against the word of God. By the way, you should always be testing yourself as well. Don't just be testing others and testing everyone else's teaching or everyone else's beliefs. We should always be testing ourselves as well. And by the way, Um, You should always be asking yourself whether there's anything in your life that's out of step with the word. Because there are many people who are theologically correct who are not living according to the word. And that disobedience shows that no matter how much they know about the word, they do not actually believe God's word. So, let's look at an amazing story of meticulous attentiveness to the truth of the word. Turn back with me back to the book of Galatians. Back to Galatians chapter 2, and and look at verse 11 with me. Galatians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. It's the second paragraph there. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of a certain men from James, that's Jesus' brother, the leader of the Jerusalem church, He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it? that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. Verse 15, 
We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, have we heard this before, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Notice Galatians, the Galatians 2 teaching points. Number one, here's your blank. Even the leader of the apostles could err. Number two, Paul held Peter accountable for his error. And this is important. Here's your next blank. Number three, Paul didn't bicker about small things. Look at verse 14 again. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, then he calls out Peter. This is, look at this. It, this is about the gospel, right? It, this is, was not about debatable things. This wasn't about the kind of things that many of us argue about in the church. This wasn't about, frankly, the kinds of things that divide most denominations and non-denominations from each other, right? This was about the gospel. So Paul didn't fight about the trivial things. And then look at <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. You're in Galatians, chapter 1, verse 11. The second paragraph there. But... When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, excuse me, chapter 1, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 11, uh, the third paragraph. For I would have, have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preached by me, is, preached by me, is not according to humans. Listen to this, verse 12. For I neither received it from humans, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, you, you may know that he went into the Arabian desert after he was converted and Jesus there ministered to him and he saw things, literally he says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about these incredible visions and he didn't know whether he was caught up into heaven or just seeing a vision of heaven. And he literally says, I saw things which not even angels are allowed to see. Now that is an impressive revelation. Jesus himself teaching. Paul has incredible revelation directly from God. But now look at the beginning of chapter 2. Think about it. He's now been 14 years out. He knows he's got the gospel straight from Jesus in his visions from heaven. And notice chapter 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas saying, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation, so it's talking about that spectacular revelation that he had. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Notice his amazing humility, even though Jesus has been giving him direct revelations. Right? Verse 7, look at this. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had to the circumcised, look with me at verse 9, and recognizing the grace which had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed, reputed to be pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing which I was also eager to do. This leads to a powerful principle, right? Number four, look at this. 
even though Paul had spectacular revelations directly from God, there's your blank, he allowed himself to be held accountable and under authority. Now pay attention. Many people in the church who consider it their place to be to set everyone else right don't fall under authority themselves. Many of them are church splitters. Many of them are church hoppers. Before you ever presume to call someone in authority to task on a theological issue or an ecclesiastical issue of how the church should be run, those kind of things, even if you're right, listen, like Paul, even if you're right, first, make sure that you don't have a spirit of sedition or rebellion because God hates sedition even if you're 100% right on the topic. Now, because none of us like submitting to authority, right? <laughs> to help this sink in, let's look at an amazing story in Paul's life back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 23. Turn with me to Acts chapter 23. <clears throat> Acts chapter 23. Start with the first verse. This is just a remarkable thing. So here's Paul. He's, he's being tried before the council, the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, and he's being tried because now, of course, he's been following Christ and gone on missionary journeys and all that. And look, verse 1, chapter 23, and Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> and do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Verse 4, but the bystander said, listen to this question, do you revile God's high priest? Verse 5, and Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, and guess what he does? He corrects himself with the Bible. With scripture, he quotes it right out of the Old Testament. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Wow. Look what we learn from this passage. Here's your blanks. Number one, Paul was right. Listen, church. Listen, everyone out there who knows you're right. You know you're right. You know you're right. Listen. Number two, the high priest was a whitewashed wall. And if he did not repent of his sins... He was going to be separated from God forever. Paul was absolutely right, and the high priest was absolutely wrong. But look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Write it in. Number three, when Paul became aware that it was the high priest, <clears throat> he immediately corrected himself corrected himself by acknowledging the priest's spiritual authority. Isn't that remarkable? Even though the pastor had it wrong and he had it right, he immediately submitted to God's authority because he knew that authority is ultimately not about that high priest who was a whitewashed wall or your pastor who you think may be a, a real bozo or whatever. It's not about that. It is by us falling under others' authority in, in the human realm, we're showing that we're willing to submit to God's authority. And number four, Paul used scripture to correct himself. 
Oh God, that the church will do that now in the midst of this day when there's so much wrong in the church, but it's so easy to point out there at all of those evil people and all of that going on. Oh God, may we like Paul use the scripture to correct ourselves. It amazes me how easily we quote scripture to correct the errors of others and how often we forget to do the same thing to correct ourselves. Number five, here's your blanks. Number five, the need to correct error in the church never nullifies our responsibility to fall under authority. Oh Lord, how many churches would be on mission and not split and not divided if all of us would just remember the need to correct error in the church never nullifies our responsibility to fall under authority. So before you begin your own personal error bashing ministry, make sure you understand biblical authority first. Let me give you a tiny example, a timely example. Tomorrow, many of us who are watching, right? Um, many of us who are watching will be going to a good, excuse me, next week, we'll be going to a good Friday service, right? Next week, going to a good Friday service. But remember, <laughs> Even if you're now completely convinced that Jesus was crucified on Thursday, it's not your role to boycott or to stand up during the Good Friday message and call out the leaders. That's not your role. That would be seditious against authority. Here's my suggestion. If you go to a Good Friday service, just sit there quietly and pretend it's Thursday. <laughs> Learning point number three. Learning point number three, remember our persistent tendency to love tradition more than truth. Let me say that again. Remember our persistent tendency to love tradition more than truth. There's an ever-present tendency within us to raise style and religious patterns in our particular church subculture to the level of doctrine. The Hebrews were famous for this. Turn with me to Mark the second of the Gospels, Mark chapter 7. See, the Hebrews were famous for this, and the Scripture gives us many pictures of it, right? This loving, loving tradition and elevating our tradition to doctrine. Look at this, verse 1 in Mark chapter 7. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus when they had come to Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came to the marketplace, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, right? Lots of traditions and ordinances, right? Such as washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes said to him, all right, to Jesus, you ready? Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. Guess where Jesus goes? Right to the word, the Old Testament. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Listen to this and let it soak in. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Whoa. Preaching as doctrines the precepts of men. 
They had elevated tradition to a position that was above even the commands of God. Why? Because they loved their traditions more than they loved the truth. The truth with a capital T was standing in front of them. But they loved their tradition more than they loved even their own God. But be careful before you're too hard on Israel. Paul warns us in the new covenant that we have the same tendency. All right? Man, we're, yeah, this is a get used to, to this if you're uh, going to follow Thursology. We're, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going back and forth and back and forth in the text, right? Look at this. Chapter 11, verse 2. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Verse 3. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the, ready? From the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What a profound, write it in, here's your blank. A profound description of what Christianity is supposed to be as opposed to religion and tradition and rules and law. You ready for this? What it's supposed to be? Write it in. The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, will a person who is simply and perfectly and purely because of the Holy Spirit's cleansing devoted to Christ, are they going to do evil things? Of course not. But it'll flow from inside the transformed heart. Now let me stop for a moment. This, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, does that describe your Christianity? Is this the sum total of your relationship with Jesus? That simple, pure, absolutely focused, Jesus, you are all that matters, and pleasing you is all that matters. And your spirit, I need your spirit, your breath, the pneuma, the breath of God to make me like you. Or have you added a whole bunch of religious stuff on top? If you have, then you're still living the old covenant. So listen, the gospel can end up with all kinds of other ornaments hung on it. Hung on it. And they're beautiful ornaments, right? They're very religious. They really, they're very sacramental. They're very sacred. But the scripture continuously reminds us that there's only one ultimate intent for the gospel. Ready? The one ultimate intent of the gospel is that what will happen to us will be that we will live in the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If you haven't experienced that, then Jesus challenged you to throw out the religion and he bids you to join him in a simple, pure, devoted love relationship. Learning point number four. Here's your blanks. Don't underestimate the consequences of choosing tradition rather than the simplicity of Christ. Let's return to the story Jesus and the Pharisees uh, of them that we just read. But let's look at the rendering in Matthew, right? Turn, you're in 2 Corinthians, turn back to, and we heard this in Mark. But now turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Here we're going to find what happens 
when people choose tradition over truth and the love of God. Chapter 15 of Matthew, starting with verse 3. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of the father or mother, let him be put to death. But you said, notice, always going to the text, always going to the scripture, but you say, verse 5, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine that you might have been helped by has been given to God. Doesn't that sound religious? Sounds very spiritual, right? It's a very religious spiritual reason to break God's command, right? Okay, verse 6. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and this, and by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Here's the biblical concept. Write it in. When we fall in love with human tradition, we invalidate the word of God. And Good Friday is a perfect example of this, right? In fact, this error not only invalidates the written word of God, it invalidates the incarnate word of God. If Jesus was only in the grave two days and two nights, Jesus is not the Messiah. So it literally can invalidate the incarnate word of God himself, the Savior, the Messiah. And, and so we've seen that if the Good Friday tradition is right, then Jesus is a pretender and he isn't the real Messiah. When we fall in love with human traditions, it has profound consequences. Learning point number five. Here's your blanks. God allows false teaching in the church, so beware. God allows false teaching in the church, so beware. Why has God allowed misteaching in the church for 17 centuries? Because he's waiting for the church to be willing to pay the price to know the truth and stand up for it. In fact, one of the famous Revelation churches is encouraged and applauded by the Lord for doing just this. Turn with me to the second chapter, the second chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Here we start the seven letters from Jesus through John to the seven churches in the Revelation. Right? Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Here we are at the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you notice this, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. Verse three, and you have perseverance and have endured for my sake and have not grown weary. The message to the church of Ephesus should warn us. There were false teachers way back early in the church, and there will always be false teaching in the church. In fact, the word teaches that as we near the end of the age, false teaching will increase and many will be led astray. So every one of us should beware. Application number one. Here's your blank. Shouldn't we be trying to change Good Friday? to Good Thursday? Shouldn't we be changing Good Friday to Good Thursday? So, why aren't we out there making a big push for Good Thursday? Well, <laughs> on the one hand, 
I am teaching this in the scope of my influence, and I would encourage you to do this also within the authority and the sphere of influence that God has given you. But don't you dare tell anyone that the reason that you know that Christ was crucified on Thursday is because you watched a series on the internet. If you're going to tell others the truth, then make sure that you use the word, not human teaching. And let me give you a warning. You'd better go over, you better go over and over and over the scripture until you know it cold because tradition dies very hard in the church, even in the evangelical Protestant church. Application number two, Good Friday is not the real problem. See, I've shown how significant of an issue the Good Friday error is. Some scholars and skeptics have even successfully used this argument to create doubts about the messianic claims of Jesus of Nazareth. But the Good Friday issue isn't the real problem. Please listen carefully. Because this may be the most important thing that I say tonight. The false teaching of Good Friday is only a symptom of the real problem in the church. The real problem in the church isn't that we're teaching the tradition of Good Friday. You ready? Here's the real problem in the church. Here's your, here's your last blanks. The real problem in the church, many Christians don't know the word well enough to know when they're being falsely taught. So here's the challenge. The church's lack of dedication to know the word tells us a lot about ourselves. We seem to have forgotten that in the army of God, a soldier without a sword, what is the word? It is the sword of the spirit. But a soldier without a sword in the army of God is useless. Listen, it's useless to the king. We seem to have forgotten that we'll never be able to enlighten the confused minds and the dark hearts of the hopeless people of this generation by using our own wisdom. We seem to have forgotten that the word of the living God is the world's only hope. So I leave you with this truth tonight. The world doesn't need our word, our way, our church. The world doesn't need that. The world needs God's word. And the Lord is looking for a remnant of people who give more than just lip service to knowing the scripture. God is looking for a church that's really serious about taking up the sword. Let's pray. Lord, in this glorious season of Easter, help us to pause long enough to realize that we have a hope that isn't known by most of the world. In this glorious season of Easter, help us to pause long enough to recognize just how desperate our day is. In this glorious season of Easter, convict our hearts of our sloppy and slothful approach to studying your word, Lord. In this glorious season of Easter, may we hold ourselves accountable to follow the word in every choice, in every decision, and every action in our life. In this glorious season of Easter, May we covenant with you to pay the price to pick up our sword. May we be willing to pay the price to join the faithful believers that have gone before us. And maybe we be willing to pay the price to join those around the world today who are meeting in hidden places and in house churches and even in caves. Lord, 
the persecuted church all over the globe. Just hoping, they're just hoping that they won't hear the dreaded footsteps of the soldiers who are coming to take them away and to destroy their Bibles. Lord, may we be willing to pay the price while we still have the word in our hands to know your word and to live your word. Lord, may we be changed by your spirit in such a way that will consume your word and will love your word and will know your word. And as we do this, Lord, we ask you to empower us to help you build your kingdom. We love you, Lord. Amen. Next week, <clears throat> Thursology is on Good Thursday. <laughs> We'll deal with what I consider to be one of the three most impressive of all timing prophecies in the scripture. The Old Testament actually foretold the very day of the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem and was declared Messiah by Israel. You'll be astonished at the perfect accuracy of this biblical prophecy. I'll see you next Thursday. <laughs>